0: debt default would seem in some ways like a government shutdown. But it's not. In fact, the government is fully appropriated for the rest of fiscal 2023. It's money to roll over T-bills coming due that the government would not have. None of this is to say things would be hunky-dory for contractors. Here's the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, you've been watching this carefully. So what happened with contractors? I mean, the government wouldn't be able to pay bills, is what we're hearing from the Treasury, from Mrs. Yellen.
1: That's right, Tom. And you point out at the beginning of your commentary there, we have an abundance of appropriations, right? I mean, we've got a huge appropriation in FY23. Most of those funds are not yet obligated. Actually, the Constitution is quite clear on this point, And the Supreme Court even ruled about 50 years ago in support of this. The Constitution, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7, says essentially no funds shall be disbursed from the Treasury except upon appropriations. What happened under Richard Nixon, because you remember he actually tried to rescind those funds and not spend them, and the Supreme Court ruled that the reverse is also true. If Congress appropriates it, you have to spend it. And so the Constitution is clear, and the history and the courts have ruled very clearly in this regard. If we were to have a default it would not be a lapse in appropriations and therefore the procedures that the government has in place governing a government shutdown would not only be irrelevant they might even be counterproductive but what we see already is that agencies are thinking about it and talking about it as if it's a shutdown we're hearing conversations of who's essential and who's not well that's not a choice that the government has to make in fact it goes even further the anti-deficiency act says you can't donate time to the federal government You have to be paid for it, right? Well, okay, how do you require somebody to work if you're not paying them, even if the contract's already in place? It's potentially a real mess here, and we need to see some clear guidance pretty quickly to sort this out.
0: Right, because agencies then could go in the wrong direction by either asking for contractors to keep working and will pay you later wrongly, assuming that they can't pay the contractors, or just shut things down that are any contract that may not be directly related to just operating and keeping the agency going.
1: Right. So what's the first question in the shutdown you ask yourself? What's my source of funds, and is my work under the contract affected by the lapse in appropriations? If it's prior year appropriations, if it's current year appropriations that have already been obligated, then there's no effect. There could be an effect for other reasons. The building's not open. You can't get to the job. There's nobody there to approve your invoice or your task order, et cetera, etc., but none of that is driven by the kinds of factors that will come into place in default. What's instructive, Tom, is look back and see what the plans have been the last few times we've come close to this. Twenty eleven and twenty thirteen are instructive in that regard. And we can look at some of the plans that were in place even though they were never actually promulgated
0: right so what you're saying now then is that the office of management and budget the white house ought to start issuing some detailed guidance in the eventuality that sometime in the next who knows week two weeks three weeks this happens
1: right i mean uh, the secretary of the treasury has said june 1st could be x date right the date at which treasury wakes up and doesn't have enough money that doesn't mean they have no money it means they got whatever came in last night and they have whatever bills are due that day so the question is if you don't have enough which ones do you pay this is a real tough challenge what treasury did in the past in 2011 and again 2013 was plan to pay first and foremost the principal and interest on those t-bills because you can't have a global economy collapse and everything's based on treasury bills but what does that mean not only for contractor invoices what does it mean for government payroll for civilian employees and uniformed personnel What does it mean for Social Security recipients? What does it mean for Medicare and Medicaid recipients? What does it mean for food stamp recipients? Who comes first? Who gets paid first? That's a question we don't know the answer to. How can you plan without knowing the answer to that question?
0: We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, and switching gears to something a little bit more immediate. The emergency or the health crisis has passed in an official way. I love it when they say we're planning for the end of the crisis. I said, I wish they could name the hour and date of every crisis to end. We could pronounce them over. But along with that, the vaccine mandate went away in a quiet, sort of pitiful death, and that included contractors. So what are the lessons learned here?
1: First of all, the federal health emergency that you referred to did expire midnight May 11th, so last week, and it was kind of an interesting thing, Tom, because the emergency had to be renewed every 90 days, and it had been being renewed ever since uh, you know uh, early 2020, when it came time to renew again, the president decided and actually signed a bill from Congress that helped his decision. We're not going to renew it anymore. So you did have a specific date and time. From a contractor's point of view, there were a host. Of changes in regulation and procedure that were predicated upon that national health emergency. We saw just a couple of weeks ago, the Defense Department went back to 80% progress payments for its major weapon systems, cutting back from 90%, all predicated upon the national health emergency. The vaccine mandates, two executive orders, 14042 and 14043, were both rescinded last week. One applied to federal civilian employees. The other applied to contractors. And so those are now OBE. There are still court cases out there. Whether those fall apart or not, I don't know, because some of those cases were predicated upon something other than the health emergency. So we'll see, I have to see how the courts play out.
0: Right. So in many ways, then, it was a mandate that had not that much health effect that we can see, but it had a whole lot of legal and administrative effect.
1: It did, and there's one particular effect that I think has had very little attention paid to it, and that was the fundamental process by which the acquisition regulation was promulgated. So there was a clause inserted in the federal acquisition regulation that basically said, comply with the vaccine mandate, but the clause itself did not specify what that mandate was. Instead, it referred you to a website of the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force, right? And that website was unaccounted for. It had no letterhead. It had no authority anywhere. It had no designation of who was the responsible agent or official. And it could change at a moment's notice without any notification whatsoever and affect millions of contracts. You know, This is the kind of thing that seems to me to have set a very bad precedent. Not that the FAR doesn't refer to websites elsewhere, because there's plenty of government regulations that are not part of the FAR. For instance, the NIST standard that governs cybersecurity is controlled by NIST. But you know who owns it. You know what process they follow to modify it. You have the chance to comment on it. It may not be under the Administrative Procedure Act, but there's plenty of public input to that. None of that was visible and present in this vaccine mandate. That's something I think that merits view going forward because this may not be the last time we face
0: this. All right. And a final question has to do with something that the court did to intervene in the whole procurement contractor system. And that was say that the GSA was not legally entitled to allow unpriced bids for spots on some of the big GWACs that GSA has been trying to push out the door. And GSA's idea is that the prices would be negotiated at the task order level. That's kind of what the new era of flexibility and less friction in contracting. The court said no. And so what's your take on what this all means? And there's a couple of issues here that weren't directly addressed in that case.
1: That's correct. There's at least four separate kinds of issues here. One is the statutory basis for that GSA approach, which was a section that was in the fiscal year 18 National Defense Authorization Act that GSA's read would permit them to do the unpriced orders at the GWAC level. And it makes sense, Tom, that you can't really predict what your price is until you know what the work is that you're going to be doing. And that comes with the task orders. But if the statutory basis is under question, then point number one is What do you do to change the statutory basis? And that's something that we at PSC are looking at and seeing whether we can get something done in in this fiscal year uh, in in the legislation. The second is it immediately affects the Polaris contract, and bids were submitted on that, Tom, last November. And people have been waiting already six months, and now the whole thing is thrown into turvy, right, and also the OASIS Plus contract. The third thing is what's the nature of joint ventures in the federal government. And that's something that really is all over the place. It needs to be clarified. And the Small Business Administration, particularly for small business joint ventures, SBA will need to step up here. And then the fourth, I think, comes into play, which is, how do you actually keep competition going and keep companies in business when protests like this and court cases like this can make you take forever and then you can't even use the bid that you submitted? So all of that needs to be sorted out.
0: David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much.
1: You're welcome, Tom. Look forward to the next one.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, Associate Provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you.
2: It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware
3: of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th-century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States, and he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of harsh man. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself
2: you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that?
3: So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about
2: bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many
3: so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And...